You're listening to a conversation already in progress. You can hear Jim and I discuss the state of the Academy and particularly where it stands in the wake of Me Too and Oscar So White in part one of our discussion. But for now, let's continue on by talking about the Best Picture nominees and some other interesting categories for the 95th Academy Awards. Which film do you want to start off with for the Best Picture nominees? Well, maybe we can just do it in that way. How about we, we, we do the spectacles first and then the dramas second? What do you think of that? That sounds great. Um, do you want to start off with Top Gun? Yeah, sure. Let's do Top Gun. Um, I avoided this film for the longest time <laughs> because, you know, it's just like everybody was talking about it. And um, I heard everything about it, that it was, you know, a return to, you know, kind of old school, you know, nostalgia, um, just feel good Hollywood action movie. I, I was stunned that it was nominated for Best Picture. I still am. <laughs> Um, because I don't, you know, it's a Jerry Bruckheimer, Jerry Bruckheimer produced film. Um, I don't know how many of those, if any, have ever been nominated, but, um, you know, right. this is usually the summertime blockbuster, you know, and that's it. Having said that, I, I did finally break down and watch it and I was very entertained and yeah. it really challenges my disdain for the military Hollywood industrial complex, you know, <laughs> um, but it was very well made right from the opening frames. It was, I could see um, that there was a lot of um, skill and um, just a lot of passion put into this movie. And I think deserving of a best editing nomination. I don't know if it's deserving of a win, but other than its popularity, I don't know why it was nominated for best picture. Well, I think the reason, honestly, is people are getting kind of spooked in the industry that the kind of Jerry Brockheimer movie, the Michael Bay movie is no longer popular. And the fact that we they had a success with this film has led a lot of people who used to dismiss, you know, Michael Bay, Jerry Brockheimer, or even someone like Steven Spielberg, and almost realize that there's a risk that this sort of movie, you know, could kind of fall by the wayside. And therefore, perhaps some of America's kind of cultural power, some of Hollywood's cultural power. And so I think there is kind of perhaps a, an appreciation, a, re, a renewed appreciation for the fact that, you know, these movies exist and could disappear someday or could become kind of greatly diminished. I think as well, just the the sheer balls of Tom Cruise and the team to do this. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. The aerial photography yeah. may be the best. I mean, it's got to be the best aerial photography in, in the yeah. history of film. Yeah. yeah, this is probably what Steven Spielberg dreamed of when he made 1945, right? Or 1941, right? Sorry, 1941, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... You know, even the original Top Gun, like there's just the aerial photography. It just doesn't hold a candle to this one. Right. And, and the fact that True. Tom Cruise made everyone go through the training, the fact that they're in the cockpit during all these mm, flight yes. sequences and you can see them struggling to remain conscious. Yeah, it's there's there's a level of kind of old school insanity that yeah. you used to get on, I don't know, maybe like a Cecil B. DeMille film or something, uh, where you just know these directors are kind of pushing physical limits. Um, these filmmakers, these actors, that it 
it's just impressive to see it, particularly in this age of like, you know, the marvelization of everything, everything being done in front of a green screen. It may have been the director or the Actors Guild, uh, the SAG Awards, where I believe it was Judd Apatow who's hosting. He's kind of making, he made a lot of jokes about Tom Cruise. He, he kind of made this smug remark where it's like, doesn't this guy know there are green screens? I mean, like, why is he going out and like killing himself to do this? I was like, oh, come on. Like, there's a lot to not like about Hollywood and, and you know, maybe even Tom Cruise. But this is what I love about him. The fact that he's right. doing this. And yeah, true. I think uh, for a lot of audiences, people around the world, I mean, I, I saw it in, in theaters twice with, you know, I'm, it's here in Korea. And there was just this great shared sense of awe the whole time that I really miss. And I think that's why it's being nominated for Best Picture, honestly. It is a very well-made Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah. I think as people are losing sense of the tactile element of everything in life, you know, maybe that's a bit stretch, uh, a bit of a stretch, but I do think that there's something to feeling a real performance and feeling that kind of pull, like you're saying, f feeling the gravity of the film, if you will. Yeah, there is there is that to it for sure. Yeah. And I, should it be nominated for Best Picture? I don't know. I really loved it. It it certainly needs to be nominated for like Best Visual Effects. I don't think there's a category for stunts, but if there was, this, this would hands down win it. I would mm. also say Avatar 2 kind of fits in this category. Okay, so let's let's move into Avatar because this is the one film of the 10 that I didn't see. Okay, let me yeah. let me just say why I didn't see it. I mean, I was going to see it, uh, you know, Cece and I had tickets one day and then I had a class that I didn't realize I had. You know, I was going to go, we had to cancel. But then I just never yeah. found time to go. But then I started hearing people talking about it. And people were saying that it's that the story is extremely banal and you know, people were describing it to me. I was in Chiang Mai and I talked to some friends who had gone to the theater there to see it. And one guy walked out because he was in the first half hour. He's like, oh, I know exactly where this is going. I don't need to sit here for three hours to watch it. And I think all of these things just kind of um, drained me of my interest in going. Mm. And they're not wrong. I don't think those criticisms are wrong. I, I would say what kept me engaged in the movie and why I'd say overall I liked it is because the sheer technological prowess on display, once again, the kind of insanity of James Cameron in doing this and yeah. kind of making his own studio and just spending like... 10 years? Yeah, a decade doing this. Is it 10 years? Is that right? I think so. I think so. It's getting pretty close if it isn't. And the results speak for themselves. I mean, if you see this movie in 3D, it's just... It's just a pure spectacle. I mean, I was in awe of, okay. of how transporting the visuals were. Well, that's what happened to me the first time I saw it. it, it let yeah. me ask you this. Did, was it 10 years better than the original Avatar? Um, he's definitely advanced things. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't have a strong memory of Avatar 1 other than I was impressed by the 3D, but this was definitely better. And okay. we have to mention, I mean, you know, Top Gun, Maverick, they went into the air, which is notoriously difficult to shoot flying scenes. It's even harder to shoot things underwater. It is. And so much of the film takes place underwater that it's just like, it's incredible that they were able to kind of do this. And so that just fueled my engagement for, 
you know, a good half or two thirds of the film before it just kind of wore off. And I was kind of <laughs> stuck with the story and, and the characters that I didn't care that much about. I mean, it is a popcorn movie. It's, you know, you get very familiar arcs and characters and stuff like that. But it it retains an old school Hollywood sense of awe that, for me, it worked. Um, should it be nominated? Again, I mean, I guess there is so much angst over this sort of film disappearing. And mm. I guess in a way, like, do you have to honor someone this insanely committed to this, you know, insane sort of project, a project that's of such a massive scale and requires so much more new, new technology? I think he made his own underwater camera system for this, you know? He does have a thing about being underwater and putting his actors underwater. <laughs> he certainly does. It seems to be a theme in his movies. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure he does a lot of underwater dives himself yeah, and yeah. submarines. He explored the wreck of the Titanic and stuff. So, I mean, he's, I don't know. It's its certainly more deserving of the third film on the list, Elvis. Okay, so that's, there's a nice, yeah, there's a nice transition here. Um, because Elvis is also some extreme levels of uh, spectacle, which is what we should expect from Boz Lerman. I don't know how you feel about Boz Lerman. I, I actually enjoy him. Um, like, I, I just loved Romeo and Juliet, for example. I, I thought that the, the performances were terrible, but the visualization <laughs> of the Shakespeare, I thought was brilliant. And, and I do like his spectacle. But how did you feel about this film? Well, I, I can appreciate what you're saying. I just think Boz Lerman and CGI are such a terrible mix. I mm. mean... It's one thing Ooh, that's a good point. to appreciate, I think, Romeo and Juliet, which was very garish and sort of loud and ostentatious. It's another thing to sit through a movie where it's like, if could you just stop putting graphics on screen and like yeah. shut up for a second and let me just watch the actors <laughs> doing things? Like, could you please stop doing things and being so maximalist? That was my feeling yeah. the whole, the first 30 minutes. He does settle down a little bit to the point yeah, the where I'm like- the first 30 minutes were manic. Yeah. And very bad CGI. It's terrible. It's like, please, for the love of God, just stop doing things. Let me watch yeah. the movie. <laughs> that was my feeling about Elvis. <laughs> yeah, I I thought it was, I, I thought it was well acted. I thought it was creatively shot and edited. I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem if it won the cinematography and editing awards. I had problems with the substance of the film. I I, I agree with those who criticize telling the story through the awful manager. Um, and it should this film should be roasted on that alone. <laughs> that is a terrible decision. Yeah. And that was compounded with the fact that they'd cast Tom Hanks in the role, which did not work at all for me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very odd, like it just seemed to be, it almost had kind of like a, a universal studio, like universal monster movie quality about it where, <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, yes. he's almost comically larger than yeah, It was life. comical. Yeah. 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 Austin Butler did a great job, though. Yeah, I thought he was good, but I, you know, I, I don't know anything about him. I, I remember him from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but I've got, I think, if you're going to cast anybody, I also heard that, um, like Miles Teller was up for this, which would have been interesting because I think he's a very, he's become a very good actor. I thought that, um, I thought the performance was 
great, but I'm just developing a general distaste for these bio biopic films of famous people. Mm. You know, he shows at the end of the movie, he shows Elvis and it's like, oh, right, that's Elvis. You know, I had a hard time with this with the with the Elton John movie. I had a hard time with this with the with Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, they they just they're not them. And I know who they are. And so seeing actors portray them, maybe because it's cinema so hyper real now that it there's something off the whole time for me so i've developed this rule that i can't support any actor winning an award for mimicking a real person i think that a best actor should be awarded to an original character that the actor has to make from scratch and I understand, of course, there's a screenplay, there's work with directors. I know it's a collaborative thing, but I just, you know, I, I saw an interview, actually, I think it was one of these Hollywood Reporter roundtables. Maybe it wasn't Hollywood Reporter, but it was a roundtable interview. And Brendan Fraser was just, you know, heaping praise on him. Austin, what's his name? I don't even know his Austin last name. Butler. Austin Butler was just heaping praise on him. He said an interesting point. He said that you didn't just mimic him, you, you made him your own. I don't buy that. Uh, I don't, <laughs> it still is a kind of mimicking of, of Elvis that to me takes away from the real person. So I feel like every biopic takes away from the real person. But that said, I do think it was creatively rendered, um, you know, at the level of spectacle. I, I, I thought it was good. Uh, you know, you said that you kind of wore out at, towards the end of Avatar. I definitely wore out at the end of this film. I thought the Vegas stuff was spectacular. The Vegas performances were spectacular. And after that was over, I was done with the movie. I And it lingered on for another 20 minutes. So I, I felt a little exhausted from this film. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I agree with a lot, what a lot of your points are about biopics and stuff like that. It is, there's something really unsatisfying about biopics yeah. where it, it unsatisfying just, is a good word yeah it's it's kind of like cinematic fast food in some ways mm -hmm. a different category of of what we might call spectacle film and probably the best example the most artistic example of of a sort of spectacle film is uh all quiet on the western front mm -hmm. which i feel like is is a sort of spectacle movie that i can give kind of an unqualified yes to even though there are parts of the film and the filmmaking that I wasn't as keen on, I, I would say, for example, it never quite transcends a a sort of how how can I phrase this drab Netflix aesthetic. Um, <laughs> like it's the scope of the film is incredible. the The battle scenes are incredible, mm -hmm. but there's something that Netflix mm -hmm. films do, which I find really underwhelming, which is, I don't know, it seems to be a mix of desaturated colors and period films, and maybe just the fact that it's premiering on Netflix, and there's something kind of diminishing about that, that takes away from the film. But overall, the acting, the battle sequences... And most importantly, the film's ability to retain a lot of the book's anti-war power, Yeah, I think. And the, the fact that it is, in many ways, quite nihilistic about the topic of war. And it, it's not shying right. away from that. It, it, it are all things to be celebrated. And this is certainly a film I that I think has to be watched and is a, is a very important film. Yeah, I was quite affected by this movie. And I think it all works because of 
the casting of this actor. Mm. And I think they casted him for his eyes. I think he, I mean, he obviously has skill as an actor, but he did an incredibly evocative, effective thousand yard stare. And yes. the arc of this movie to me is the change in his face over the course of the movie, which is a very well done arc. Yes. Um, so, you know, you and I are both readers of Deleuze, right? Yeah. Remember his concept of the affection image, which is the close up. Um, this movie is about his affection image and the way it changes over time. And it's just heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see the enthusiasm and the innocence, which wasn't done in a ham-fisted way at all. Yep. It was, felt very real. And the and how that changes over the course of the film to this just completely defeated, you know, person about life and death. Yes. And it's crushing and just beautifully, beautifully made. I, I was really affected by this movie. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. The actor in question that we're talking about is, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Felix Kammerer. And okay. he certainly, you know, I, I agree, his eyes, the level of affect that he's displaying is, is very moving. I also need to shout out a, a criminally unknown or, or underappreciated, I should say, actor is uh, Albrecht Schusch, who plays one of the older soldiers. Um, he's oh, the, yeah. the man whose child died, I believe. And uh, he was in... He was uh, great. Fantastic. He was fantastic. And I first saw him, I think, uh, a, a few years ago in a, a version of uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz, a, a kind of remake of that, that film. He played Reinhold in that. And he was so good in that. Mm. And ever since, he's kind of been on my radar. It's just someone to okay. to watch out for. And I thought he did uh, an equally impressive job here. And I, I really want to see him thrive, you know, because I, I feel like yeah. he's he's a, a an almost like Christoph Waltz character where at some point people are going to realize how kind of brilliant this guy is and, and he's going to get the, the acclaim he deserves. So who is the director is Edward Berger? I believe, or Berger. Yeah, Berger. Yeah, or Berger. Uh, was he nominated for director? I don't think no, so. No, he was not. Yeah. No. Yeah, okay. uh, but this film has, has gotten some awards. Uh, it won, it did very well at the BAFTAs, for example. Okay. And uh, yeah, it will probably win like best international film. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was nominated for cinematography as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, James Friend. Yeah, some of the post effects, uh, the digital effects, um, like the fire, stood out to me um, as being poorly rendered. Some of the visual effects I thought were rushed or something. Um, that would be my only critique of the film. Okay, well, moving on to the last of the spectacle films, and I, I think the one that uh, we'll probably have the most disagreement about. It's the most nominated film at this year's Oscars, the yes. one that everyone is talking about, including the president of the Academy. Everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> There's been so much talk about this film. I mean, I did a podcast on this that we, you've already referenced. What do you have to, to say about everything, everywhere, all at once? Okay, so I don't know if I have any conclusions to give you. But I can tell you how I felt. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to feel about this movie. As I was watching it, I thought it was the most outlandishly audacious and absurd and creative film I've seen in a long time. Mm. I was sitting there saying, what the fuck? Over and over <laughs> and over again. Because of mm -hmm. the sheer audacity. And I have to give them credit for this. Mm -hmm. Because I've never seen a movie quite like this. It's interesting that it's 
it's nominated for you know it's leading the awards because it's such an absurd film um yeah but at the same time it brought up reminders of films like don't look up adam mckay um the safty brothers like you know uncut gems and good time a kind of ADHD style of filmmaking. And yeah. maybe it's just that there's a generation of filmmakers who love Scott Pilgrim. I don't know. <laughs> but I think a generation that maybe took a lot of prescription meds to deal with anxiety and depression. I don't know. But I yeah. it, it's really, um, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. So I was utterly fascinated by the uh, spectacle. It's a lot of mm. style and a lot of flash for what was really, I felt, a fairly basic immigrant story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually have a problem with films that render very simple stories in flashy clothing. But at the same time, I was kind of blown away by the imagination and the audacity of it. So I'm conflicted. Um, mm. But I want to ask you if you could give kind of maybe a, a brief summary of um, some of the disagreements um, that you had with your guest about this film? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that in terms of like visual effects, you know, they had a very small team that took a very mm-hmm. kind of DIY approach to the visual effects and they were very well done. Um, I was impressed mm-hmm. kind of overall by the look of the film. I think the cinematography was quite good as well. Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate any film that is audacious and that does kind of take, um, if not risks, at least an outside the box approach to mm-hmm. to filmmaking. My problems with the film are that down the line, its entire sensibility from its aesthetic choices to its more thematic elements are 100% designed for the social media age. Mm-hmm. There is nothing outside of social media that this film is commenting on, drawing from. Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay, you could argue like Daniel Kwan, you know, his his mother. Um, there's an element of the immigrant experience that that he draws from uh, to depict these characters, but it seems so kind of you know bound up with with all these social media elements that mm-hmm. it cheapens that and it renders it very kind of the word that kept coming up when i saw i saw it with a group of friends and one of my friends kept mentioning the word twee and i can't get that word out of my head because it's such a great description of this of so many things actually yes and what is twee um it's kind of like something that's overly cutesy it's excessively sentimental yeah yeah, it's Scott Pilgrim. And I guess I just, and, and even the sort of risks that it did take, you know, like, um, I don't know, the the dildo scenes, uh, the, um, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other things, like the rocks and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, right. It's just, it's all stuff you would see on social media. Like, I, I mm-hmm. don't consider yeah. this really out there. I just think films or at least, enough members of the academy have caught up with the already existing online sensibility that they're able to like recognize it when it's made into a film. No, I was just going to say, I don't think that's why it was nominated though. I, I think it was nominated because it is an immigrant story. Uh, I think it actually, 
it hits both of those kind of targets. I mean, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who probably are impressed by its audaciousness and the fact that it's also an immigrant story and the fact that, you know, at least people thought that Michelle Yeoh was going to be the first Asian ever to be yeah. nominated for Best Actor, which is right. actually not true. Um, I think all the way back in 1935, there was an actress who didn't identify as Asian, but was was nominated, Merle Obrun. Um, but if you look it up, actually, there is, depending on how, what you consider to be Asian, Michelle Yeoh may be the seventh Asian nominated or person, per, person of Asian descent nominated. Regardless, I mean, I think it's possible, A, to uh, acknowledge that, you know, Michelle Yeoh did put a lot of work into the, you know, the stunt work and and her mm -hmm. performance into this film, that the filmmaking team was able to do a lot with a little uh, with this film, that there are impressive things about the making of the film. I mean, the guys they got to do the stunts are, are basically YouTubers who like to mm -hmm. kind of do uh, Hong Kong yeah, that's style right. stunts and classic that. Hong Kong films. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and that's all very impressive. But at the end of the day, I, I just don't think the film is very good. And mm. I guess I kind of resent <laughs> how much it embraces social media. I mean, yeah. I'm I really like films that are able to deal with complex psychology, what we might now code as like trauma or even identity issues in very ambiguous and revelatory ways, kind of what we were talking about before with cinema. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. I mean, there's so many great examples of this. Let's, Wong Gar Wai is a great example. I mean, uh, James Gray's The Immigrant yeah. is a good example of this that, you know, deals with with the experience of immigrants and stuff like that. There are just, I, you know, I'm sure we could come up with, with so many different examples. But this film, I, I just feel like it was pandering to social media sensibilities. I kind of feel like the fandom yeah. that's built up around it is is kind of toxic. Um, and I feel like mm -hmm. there's just so much, you know, undeserved praise for this movie. Listen, it's fine if you like it. I'm glad that it did well at the box office. In what planet is this best picture? I'm sorry. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Uh, and I remember nodding while I was listening to your, your podcast on it. Um, and I think... You know, there's some overlap in what you're talking this, what you're describing as this as a social media kind of filmmaking, and what I was thinking of as an ADHD style of filmmaking. I mm -hmm. mean, they're pro they're probably born of the same, you know, overlapping um, generation and and kind of tendencies and ways of seeing the world. Um, I agree with you that I always feel like things should be played out in a sensory way, and that by hypermediatizing them, it kind of almost in a strange way deadens your senses. Yeah. So let me just, if I may, close on this thought. Mm -hmm. If Michelle Yeoh wins for Best Actress, we need to give a retroactive Academy Award to Uma Thurman for Kill Bill. Hmm. Because you feel like there's similar sort of performances? No, I feel that Uma Thurman did this way better. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps. the physical. I mean, what what she went through in the in the in Kill Bill, the extraordinary, um, you know, physical challenges that she had to do in that film, and plus giving a performance of tremendous gravity. It, it's it's still to this day, I'm very upset that she was not nominated for Kill Bill. Um, and maybe it's an unfair comparison because obviously Michelle Yeoh is doing a different um, character and a different performance, but. The thought did come to mind. 
Yeah, fair point. And and I would say just as a closing thought mm. too, like the movie is kind of sneaking in, I think, on the basis of this bifurcation between kind of spectacle and art house films. Because mm-hmm, yeah, it kind yeah. of like it bridges the gap between those in for me in a very unsatisfying way, but in a way that may herald the the sorts of the new sort of academy films that that mm-hmm. the academy will respond to. Um yeah. and I guess I don't know. Looking back at a lot of the performances and films that were overlooked in the past, and then seeing this film be recognized, it I guess it it makes me a little bit it it makes me my opinion of this film harsher. I mean, okay, yeah, it's great that a sci-fi film is being recognized. Children of Men was totally ignored. You know, that's one of the yeah, best films of the 21st yeah. century. Absolutely. And just seeing so many great horror films being ignored, like the mm-hmm. the Academy has such a weird relationship with genre filmmaking and kind of out there audacious sort of films. Like the number of times, you know, uh, in the past I said, well, Hereditary should have been nominated. And people are like, oh, it's too yeah. weird. It's too out there. It's like, okay, then this. It's too scary is, too. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but you choose this hill to die yeah. on? Like everything everywhere? I don't know. It's just... Perhaps that explains my uh, my feelings about this film, where a movie like Avatar and Top Gun, like Top Gun isn't trying to say anything really. Um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I wasn't really uh, as annoyed by its inclusion. Avatar 2 is trying to say something, but no one's really listening to that message. They're just <laughs> going to see it for the 3D. So again, yeah. that didn't irk me as much because they're just not playing off of social media sensibilities. It, yeah, it's it's irksome, I'll say. Yeah, as we branch out of the spectacles and into the art house, maybe maybe we can use the Fablemans as our in between. Even though Absolutely. Fablemans is not is not a blockbuster action movie spectacle movie, it is a recognized. Hollywood director in Steven Spielberg. And um, what did you think of this film? So I really like The Fablemans. Uh, It's interesting. I was mentioning before how characters in Hollywood who previously would have been dismissed by critics or, you know, more art house kind of leaning audiences are now kind of being embraced because their films are not doing as well because there seems to be a lot of concern about the the state of sort of adult-minded cinema uh, in mm. in Hollywood and and in the film industry. You know, in the 90s, Spielberg was someone who's kind of poo-pooed as this overly commercial guy who kind of killed New Hollywood, right? And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now he's being embraced as like, you know, one of the last keepers of, of this tradition of, of cinema. And mm. I got to say, I mean... I guess maybe I'm being influenced by that narrative a bit, but I also think The Fablemans is just a good movie. I, you know, it's um, there's enough of the personal in it that I I found it compelling. I mean, it is the story of of how he kind of became a filmmaker. I'm sure it's embellished in many ways, but there's also a quality to his filmmaking that I just find very refreshing. I mean, the way he presents family dynamics. The way he kind of presents, I don't know, a coming of age story in a way that's appreciative of maybe some of the things we've lost, you know, in the last 30, 40 years as, as we've kind of made this transition to, to digital and, and as social media has taken hold and, 
as a lot of the kind of more analog, tactile aspects of experience have, have fallen by the wayside, the Fablemans is a reminder that, you know, this other world did used to exist, a world where you kind of ran around with your friends outside and got your hands dirty and, and did mm. things like make eight millimeter films. And yeah. for me, there was something really beautiful about all of that. And I, I really think too, the, the central performances were really good. I mean, I, I thought uh, Michelle Williams did a really great job. Uh, I was impressed by Paul Dan. I was impressed by all the people in the film. And man, I got to tell you by, by the last scene, and this might be a spoiler for some people, though I, I'm sure everyone almost has heard about it if you're following film news. I know what you're going to say. David Lynch. Go ahead. <laughs> he makes an yes. appearance at the end of the film. <laughs> and it's just so great. And, you know, the story about that uh, was was interesting in its own right because they were hounding, you know, Lynch to to get involved. Uh, you know, Spielberg really wanted him to, to play. He plays John Ford, basically, the director. And he got Spielberg enlisted the help of Laura Dern to kind of help yeah, him. Yeah, she do had to this. call him a bunch of times to convince him. Yep. And when he finally agreed to do it, he said, I'll do it on the condition that I have a bag of Cheetos every day. Yes. That you give me a bag of yes. Cheetos, which is such a yes. David Lynch thing to ask for. Yeah, I mean, even Seth Rogen is is really good in this. And there's a sort of California experience. Yeah. I guess mm -hmm. we're how would we put it, like Southwestern American experience that I, I find really interesting. It, it I guess it's kind of a reminder of, you know, the sort of artistic creativity that was in the air mm. in the 50s and 60s. And it's, it's a reminder, I guess, of, of that sort of vitality, that social vitality, that creative vitality that existed that... Um, we may have lost or, or may be at risk these days. Um, I don't know. What did you think of the film? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on, on everything, really. Uh, I've heard people saying that this has got all of the hallmarks of a Spielberg film. I, I don't really see it that way. I, I, this is, mm. you know, a, a, a older Spielberg um, who is trying to you know who is who is telling the story of a younger spielberg and and you see the the kind of passion for you know the excitement of filmmaking that he showed in a movie like duel which is basically just a a film about his incredible knowledge of lenses and how to use lenses you know and to <laughs> to see the, the the train wreck you know stuff i just thought was fantastic um, yes. To me, I sort of took it not as a typical Spielberg movie, but what we'd imagine a Spielberg memoir would be. Mm. So there's, and I mean that in good and bad ways. I mean, it's, you know, it's got this kind of, uh, like you, you were kind of saying, a California summer glow to it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there's some of the problems of Spielberg, which is there's nothing unsurprising, really, nothing threatening. Mm -hmm. um, but on the positive side, a real love of cinema and an expression of that love with some just gorgeous and memorable shots and scenes, you know, little moments like, you know, him as a boy holding his hands up and looking at the 
projection in his hands and you know coming up with the idea for the gunshots by po- you know because he saw his mom you know his mom's sheet music which had a hole in it you know from when she threw the <laughs> the sheet music off the <laughs> piano you know to her to michelle williams dancing in the um in the car headlights um yes I just, I, I really liked it, but it was, you know, at the same time, it was a safe Spielberg movie. It was a, it was a little slow, but, mm-hmm. you know, I enjoyed it because I love cinema too. And it's a good story about that and about a character who um, finds that love and, and holds on to it. Um, I, I feel like Michelle Williams carried the film. Um, mm-hmm. And I say that uh, as someone who does not always appreciate appreciate her maybe as much as she should be appreciated i i find her a bit cold at times as an actress mm-hmm. but here she's great there's you know there's moments where she's overacting but she also owns the character she seems entirely lost in the character there's some incredible close-up shots of her um you know feeling things exactly as you would imagine somebody would feel in that situation she's got a complicated situation that she's going through um and i i thought she carried the film and and i thought it was good yeah i i agree with you i i couldn't help but wonder though listening to what you said you know we we kind of mentioned that cinema is is, is kind of about risk taking and revelation mm. and and stuff like that and i i wonder are we being you know, a little complacent here in terms of appreciating this sort of film, which which isn't taking many risks, which may be more mm. of a, kind of preaching to the choir in terms of what we want and, and maybe a nostalgia fix for for a type of movie that we grew up with. Maybe it's too much comfort food for us and, and we're kind of giving it a free pass because even though it's not really taking risks. Um, yeah, that's That's a fair point. I would say to that, the, the counterpoint might be that I think there is a, a lot of character revelation in terms of Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. And I, I would say, too, the uh, the Gabriel LaBelle guy, the Sammy Fableman or the young Spielberg. We are presented with this, you know, kind of the dissolution of the idea of the, the 50s nuclear family. And mm. that, in, in terms of this these characters, is a revelation. And perhaps, too, mm-hmm. for Spielberg and and the image of Spielberg, it is kind of revelatory in a way knowing that this guy who's become famous for for being this family-friendly filmmaker really kind of came of age discovering that his his mom was was being unfaithful, mm-hmm. you know, that he drew off of divorce as as one of yeah. the key inspirations for making these these family films and the dramas that he's famous for. So I don't think it's entirely true that this movie doesn't have risk or, or is is not revelatory, though I will say it's it's certainly much safer than a lot of the other films on the list. And um, Yeah. Yeah, you just made me think of something, though. Oh, yeah? Which doesn't have anything related to what you were just saying, but I just, when you said um, his relationship with his mother, I... <laughs> Two of the great popular filmmakers who knew each other very well and collaborated together, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. It's you know it's been said that George Lucas, his filmmaking is has a lot to do with his difficult relationship with his father, and maybe Spielberg, a lot of his filmmaking has a 
has to do with his difficult, but very close, it seems, relationship with his mother. Just a thought. The next entry on our list is definitely not, I would say, a, a safe film by any means, and that's The Banshees of Inishirin by Martin McDonough. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, what did you make of this film? Yeah, can I just say what a, what a year it was for Irish film for the Academy this year? It, we've got this one, we've got The Quiet Girl, which I watched, which was an, an adorable little film, um, yes. very simple movie. Did you see it? I did not, but we uh, we actually did a, a Biff episode, Busan International oh, Film Festival it, review. Yeah, I noticed it showed at uh, at the festival. Yeah, yeah, and I had on. I happened to have a, an Irishman on as our guest for that episode, and uh-huh. he had seen The Quiet Girl and was kind of raving about it. So I was really happy to mm-hmm. see that it made the best international picture uh, list of nominees. Yeah, and then the um, actor nomination for. After Sun. Yes, uh, Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal is Irish. So it's been quite a year. And then I mentioned um, The Wonder, and I didn't care for that film. But it's been quite a year for Irish film. But this one, I saw the trailer for this. It must, I mean, it was ages ago. And I was immediately like, yes, because right. I love In Bruges so much. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> and the two of them together are just absolutely magical. We, me and Cece tried to watch this before she left for Australia to do a movies about places and we watched it and she hated it and <laughs> really? didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I don't want to speak for her, but I think it was a, it is a dark film. Yes. At the same time that it's very kind of a lovely film. I enjoyed it. To me, I thought, you know, as I was watching, I, I was thinking it's kind of playing out like a fable. It's kind of playing out like, you know, if, if you've listened to these old Irish songs that tell these stories of sometimes this crazy, um, depressing stuff and sad stuff. And once I started thinking of it in that way, I didn't take it literally. Right. Because, you know, the violence is it's shocking. And you're like, wait, nobody would do that. But then if you if you sort of take it as a fable or some kind of song or something like that, then it's a little bit different. I don't know. What did you think of it overall? I've got more to say, but I'm curious what you thought of it overall. I was looking forward to this film a little bit less maybe than you were. I did really like In Bruges, but I was not the biggest fan of Three Billboards. I did not like that movie. The last Martin McDonough film. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah. It, it, I found it mm-hmm. a little bit too preachy. I felt like he just didn't Absolutely. seem to have this organic grasp of the social environment that he was talking about. And so mm-hmm. it, it yes. came across kind of caricatured uh, to me. Mm-hmm. I agree. I was just blown away by how both authentic, but also how kind of mythical and larger than life McDonough was mm-hmm. able to make this kind of environment that that he decided to set the film in. Because on the one hand, you are right. It is an it is a very violent film in some ways, and and in terms of the characters and and their interactions, a very ugly film. But at the same time, it's absolutely stunning in terms of the way it's shot, and yeah, it is. the the way it's written really elevates the material to almost this mythical level. Uh, you know, there mm-hmm. the reference to banshees is right in the title, and mm-hmm. banshees, as I, I believe, is is almost like kind of a 
is it a like almost like a forerunner of bad things to come or something like that? You know, it's they explained it spirit. in the film and I can't, yeah, yeah, it's a spirit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a female uh, they, spirit. They talked about it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of heralds the death of, of someone, a family mm -hmm. member or something yes, like that's that. that's it. Mm -hmm. And so there is kind of Irish lore built into right. the film, but there is also the background of the Irish civil war, mm -hmm. which... I believe also elevates this material into something more than a local squabble. It, it it becomes ultimately kind of almost like an allegory for the moment we find ourselves in, in terms of all these social divisions in this friend against friend, neighbor against neighbor sort of uh, atmosphere we live in these days. Mm. And in that respect too, I found it very, very impactful and very powerful. I think the performances were amazing uh, down the line. I, I think, you know, you, you obviously have, um, you know, Brendan Gleeson and, and Colin Farrell, uh, but then you have uh, uh, Barry Cogan as well. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And Kerry Condon as well. Like everyone was just fantastic. The writing too was just, it was so funny. It was, mm -hmm. it, there's this Irish sensibility that I know where I come from in Canada on the East Coast, there's a lot of that in our culture where there's kind of a very like matter of fact way of talking about things and almost kind of like a an uneducated way of, of talking about things that ends up being way more brilliant and insightful than something that a, you know, quote unquote, educated person could say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were moments in the film I could point out, like uh, there's this great exchange where... Uh, uh, Brendan Gleeson and, and Colin Farrell are talking. And, and the whole conceit of the film is basically like one guy decides to stop liking another, uh, you know, two friends. And mm -hmm. it basically comes down to one guy saying, if you don't stop talking to me, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to basically harm myself. And this causes a lot of hurt feelings. And, and in one exchange where Colin Farrell is drunk and confronts Brendan Fraser at the bar, He's kind of begging for an explanation. And at one point, Brendan Gleeson says the word yet. And Colin Farrell picks up on this. He's like, yet he says, like he's English, <laughs> you know? And there's mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember there's that. all these witty exchanges and incredibly sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of funny bits of dialogue that I just really, really loved. Yeah. It, it was miles away from my, what I felt like the weaknesses uh, that were on on display in in three billboards, and yeah, I can say more about this too. But for me, this was top tier filmmaking. The elevation of of kind of a very specific place and time to something allegorical and also very relevant in terms of the times that we're living in. Uh, but you had more mm -hmm. to say about this, so I, I wanted to turn things back over to you. Yeah, I mean, a few things just to just to jump off of there. The, the cinematography is is incredibly breathtaking, and the yes. costuming as well. I I think that especially Colin Farrell's clothes, like I want his wardrobe, his sweaters. <laughs> yeah, his sweaters, fantastic, uh, just fantastic clothes, and he's you know he's playing this just simple guy, and apparently they had that that stuff down to yes. the period and and the time. It's it's a. I also had the strange feeling that. There was an element of love in their relationship that couldn't be talked about. And I don't mean like a repressed homosexuality. I, that's not what's going on. Mm. I mean a, a feeling between two men that has, you know, broken down. And I just felt Colin Farrell's character's heartbreak and his just inability to come to terms with 
what has happened to this friendship that has suddenly been decided what by one person is over. It's heartbreaking. Yes. And he can't come to terms with it. And so you're right. All four of those performances are are incredible and very worthy of their nominations. You know, if I had to nitpick, uh, Colin Farrell and, and Brendan Gleeson are kind of performing their same dynamic as in Bruges, and it's written in a similar way, except that it comes in, it doesn't seem anachronistic. So it's it seems very authentic. So I, I imagine it was not that much of a struggle for them to pull this off. That said, they are different characters. And I also think that Martin McDonough has become a better filmmaker since then. Yes. I agree with you on his missteps. I also think that Seven Psychopaths was fine, but it didn't knock me out. But it's, you know, it's it's just a, a weird, very Irish, simple story. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it is kind of speaking to a lack of of the local, a lack of cultural specificity that happens in a lot of mainstream filmmaking today. You know, Marvel films mm. are are the very opposite of the sort of film that Banshees is in terms of just, you know, being as anti-local, as anti-specific as possible. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a good point. When I mentioned kind of the cultural hollowing out that the globalization of Hollywood has brought about, I think this is this is one of the primary effects where you see films that aren't really about specific people, specific places, specific times, but these sorts of kind of characters that are supposed to work for any film market in the world, these very generic spaces mm. and times and characters. Right. That's a great point. The Banshees of Inishirin is, is so refreshing because it is so specific. And kind of in a similar way, I think there are some parallels to say something like Parasite, where by being more specific to a time and place, by being more culturally specific, you end up finding the universal in it. You mm. you know, it ends up mm-hmm. resonating with people more. Uh, it, it's kind of counterintuitive in a way, but I think it does make sense. Uh, you know, we can get into kind of the Deleuzian element of, of that kind of point. But I think it's fair to say that he really kind of found universal appeal in this sort of culturally specific milieu. Also, I think to go back to the point of this kind of being an allegory for our present moment, you know, I I recommended this film to my sister, and we were kind of talking about it a little bit, and I was kind of making the point that, you know, I kind of feel like this is a, in some ways, a comment on, you know, how divisive everything is, and and how, you know, social media, for example, has divided people so much, but also Mm. just kind of the the social fracturing that has gone on since COVID with people locked in Mm -hmm. their homes and, you know, getting angry at each other online and and becoming more and more isolated and alienated and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is at the same time, I think, a story about two people who, who have this very understandable rift in some ways. I mean, I vacillated the entire film between identifying more with Colin Farrell and being kind of hurt that this this friendship ended kind of unilaterally, that this person walked away, and identifying with Brendan Gleeson where it's like, I don't want to waste my time, you know, getting drunk at a bar with this this person. I want to devote my time to something that's going to live on after I die. And so I guess that speaks more to the, almost like the allegorical mythical aspect of it is too, where you have these two archetypal sort of characters. But then also there is that resonance with our present moment. I mean, 
the Irish Civil War in the background very much speaks to a larger social context in which, you know, there is there are these growing divisions. And the very dark nihilistic ending where Colin Farrell basically says, I think it's good that people don't forgive each other. I think it's good that they're at each other's throat. And I think in that respect, it is kind of commenting on our present moment in a much more powerful way than say something like Everything Everywhere All at Once or uh, you know, a film like that, because it's not telling us what we, it's not reconfirming what we already sort of, the, the common sense of the present. But uh, I think it's looking at a, a social environment drastically different than our own in order to highlight the problem in some ways. So I, I feel like for all those reasons, it's really top tier filmmaking. I don't think it should go without saying that Brendan Gleeson is working on a piece of music and that this is his way of in a sense, doing his, what he feels he needs to do, which is his great work that will transcend his life, that will go beyond his own life, and that he is a fiddle player, and mm. he is willing to cut off his fingers. And, and that, in one sense, just is gut-wrenchingly deep, and at the same time, again, elevates this film into this, uh, this ode or this song-type quality to the film itself. So the film itself, again, I feel like it becomes, you know, it takes on a function of being, I don't want to say function, but it it takes on the significance of a, of a song. And so in a way it's, you know, I love films that, that work the, the, you know, that do a subtle meta commentary on itself without being reflexive. I don't like reflexivity in films, hmm. but I do like it when it, when it kind of does something where, where the film itself is trying to do the thing that the narrative is trying to do. Mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, I so then narratively he's trying to, he's trying to go beyond himself and the film is kind of almost acting this out for him. I don't know if that makes sense, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? It makes sense to me. I, 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 yeah. I think I understand what you're saying. The film is almost uh, yeah. as expressive as the music He's yeah, playing. it becomes a song. The film becomes kind of the song. Yes, yes. And that's the title of the film, is is the name of right. the piece that Brendan Gleeson writes. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I'm reminded of this joke that Zizek, uh, Slavoj Zizek, mentioned at <laughs> one point where I, he was talking about some old, like, Eastern European joke, or it might have been a joke from Slovenia or something like that, but it's, it's where a, a farmer was who had serious problems with his neighbor. He just despised him. And somehow he happened upon something like a genie or something. He said, I'll give you a wish, but I'll warn you that whatever I give you, I'm going to do twice over to your neighbor. Mm. And so the farmer says, take out one of my eyes, because knowing that his neighbor is going to lose yeah. both of his eyes. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. There's an element of that to Brendan Gleeson's behavior in this, where it's like, <laughs> I know I'm destroying myself, but yeah. this is ammunition. I'm willing to destroy myself if it, if it destroys my opponent. Mm -hmm. This kind of total war quality to yeah. the social dynamic of this place is, is, again, I think, kind of relevant in terms of the times that we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's another connection in the film, a small one, but interesting, to the next film that we 
should talk about on the best picture list, which is Women Talking, directed by Sarah Pauly. And that connection mm -hmm. is animals. Uh, there are animals okay. in both yeah. films which play major roles. And I think it's a sort of relationship that can only really come out of a, of a rural sort of uh, environment. You know, in, mm -hmm. in Banshees, it's, it's mostly a donkey that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Colin Farrell befriends and, and is a catalyst Jenny. for Jenny. That's right. Yes. Who, uh, apparently was, who is adorable. Quite, uh, quite the actor on the film. They all spoke pretty highly of her in terms of, mm. of her acting abilities. <laughs> and then there are two horses in Women Talking yep. that are referenced quite a lot and, and that, uh, one of the the elderly members of of the group has quite an attachment to mm -hmm. and in both cases they they really seem like kind of very genuine sorts of relationships uh that's i, I don't know a kind of a, a a weird transition but i guess it speaks to how similar in some ways the the social environment is and also how different they are, because while there is a kind of war of attrition going on in Banshees between neighbors, uh, the the war in women talking is very much one based on on genders. It's, it's man mm -hmm. versus woman. Mm -hmm. What did you make of this film, this sort of, it's, we've kind of referenced before how it takes place in this, this really isolated community. It's, it's a super religious community. I would almost say a cult that is yeah. located in, in some place, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we're kind of shocked to find out midway through the film that this is 2010. Yeah. Because I thought it was taking place during kind of like, you know, I thought they were, they were colonists or something like that. And I was kind of shocked to find out that they weren't. So it's, it's obviously a very re isolated religious community. Uh, the men have been raping the women in the community at night. One of them is caught, uh, you know, there's the men, uh, the perpetrators are hauled away and, and sent to prison. The men go off to post bail for them. While they're away, the women decide to talk about what to do. And that's most of the film. So uh, what did you mm -hmm. make of this? I mean, if we're talking about Banshees as being a very particular setting, and I like the things that you were saying there, this one, I, I did not get a sense of what that setting was, you know, setting mm. being both place and time. I didn't understand it. And then they played the the monkeys tune, Daydream Believer, I think it was. Yeah. But it may have been a different artist singing it. I was never quite sure, but we saw a person in the truck who looked very contemporary and I was very confused. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it made me think of uh, Shyamalan's, you know, The Village, where <laughs> right. we realize that this is all happening in contemporary society, basically. Sorry for the spoiler. You're, yeah, right. But I I felt conflicted about this film because on on one level it plays out and and you know I I'll, I'll just leap right into this, but it plays out as a Hollywood white woman Me Too fantasy allegory. Mm. All points of view are aired, and this is a good thing, I think, because you've got these different characters who take on these points of view of it feels like everything that's happened on the internet over the past six, five or six years. Right. But it's done very creatively. It's done by putting these points of view into, again, these, what I was assuming at the start was this old rustic situation. But it plays out 
in a fantastical kind of greatest hits fashion of feminism in the sense of those kind of it, it seems like the screenplay is trying to hit all of these points of view mm. as if it's pulled from the internet or pulled from the editorial pages of the new york times mm -hmm. now i should say that the film you know explicitly has a title card at the beginning of the movie saying that it is a fantasy it's a work of female imagination yeah but then you've got kind of these again the greatest hits kind of thing there's one cis male character who is a filling a role he is the ally who listens mm -hmm. and does not have a say now he becomes a little richer as the film goes on uh, there's also you know i'm sorry to say but a, a token transgender but oddly he is rendered mute yeah um and so some of these things were just a little awkward and it was all very again kind of white women hollywood and a lot of it kind of played a bit on the nose to me uh, a little too on mm. the nose even though it was trying to be fantastical and allegorical that's the criticism but let me give my feelings on the good of this movie i think that this movie is going to have lasting effect i think this is a movie that's going to be talked about it's going to be studied heavily in film theory and cultural studies mm -hmm. ma programs for for decades to come i think mm. all points of view are aired you know i said earlier that that was a bit too on the nose but i also think that there is something good about this because they i thought the film was very successful at hitting them and some of the dialogue, particularly Rooney Mara's character, Ona, is stellar. Like Rooney yes. Mara's lines, some of her lines were very thoughtful, very philosophical, without making it seem pedantic. I was knocked out by her performance, and I thought all the performances were outstanding. And I liked these different characterizations, these different characters embodying different ideas. I guess you've got Rooney Mara, you know, playing type you've got claire foy playing another kind of type you know like if <laughs> if rooney mara is the kierkegaardian kind of character then you know claire foy is maybe Karl marx and then you've got jesse buckley who is maybe you know maybe not a type that i can give a character to but she's like the fuck these people fuck yeah. these men yeah so jesse buckley was also in the lost daughter and i was really pulling for her to for her to win for best supporting last year she didn't win but um yeah those are kind of my thoughts i i i almost want to get into a discussion about this film i don't know how much time we want to give to it but there's just so much that can be said about this movie and what what are some of your thoughts well i would disagree with you in some respects like i i think when the film started out those thoughts kind of entered my mind where this is kind of like very much sort of a, a hollywood you know, uh, white, uh, feminist perspective. But as I realized what the setting was, I felt like the film had actually very different intentions in some ways. Mm, and I think okay. it was attempting to find a position where a lot of, you know, feminist points of view could be aired alongside of uh, maybe contrasting points of view. Um, and I, I felt like it was it was trying to find a space for the the kind of dialogue itself. Uh, in, in some ways, it was almost kind of a rejection of like the sort of lived, experienced, embodied sort of point of view, where it's like because of who I am, 
what I say has meaning as opposed to what I say has meaning, you know? And mm. I feel like it, it was almost trying to get to that point of view. It did it somewhat awkwardly at times. I mean, I totally agree with you that Rooney Mara's dialogue was, was uh, oftentimes very poetic and that her performance was great. Mm -hmm. I also really liked that we had these different points of view. We had older generations, younger generations. We had anger, forgiveness. Right. And there were a lot of, you know, it was, it was a fantastic group of, of actresses that were assembled too. I mean, you've kind of mentioned them all. Um, uh, Sheila McCarthy is another one who, uh, she's, you know, a kind of a, a staple of, of the Canadian acting scene as well, as is uh, Sarah Pauly and, and, you know, mm -hmm. one of Canada's finest directors as well. Um, so I, I think... I guess I, I was a little bit more sympathetic to the film's intentions. At the same time, I mentioned it was kind of awkward at times because I do feel like, yeah, you mentioned the the transgender character. Like I, I didn't feel like that character was given enough depth to really exactly, you know, yeah, justify the inclusion of that storyline. I did find, mm -hmm. you know the particular reasons for the muteness of that character kind of, uh, you know, very heartbreaking. But I, I did kind of feel like it is an odd choice for a film that's based on points of views being aired and debate and discussion for, for this character in particular to have nothing to say. Yeah, and then they had to, sorry to interrupt, but then they no. had to explain why she transitioned. Did right. you notice that? Yes. They had to explain that the incident didn't change her. She was already there. Right. She was already essentially who she was before, but it gave her the impetus to to transition. Yes. And I thought, oh no, please stop explaining things. Yes. You know? Yes, exactly. I, I felt like it's a it's an awkward mix for a film that almost has Malik like yeah, it does. elements to it, which I mean, Malik is just kind of a master at, at not explaining, you know, just... Exactly. There, there's a, a, a vastness and, and kind of an unknowability about uh, some of the milieus that he presents. And mm -hmm. it's, it's an awkward mix to, to have that alongside these, you know, this very awkward exposition. As well, I would say at times, the film kind of, the discussions almost started to resemble a bit of a struggle session. You know, especially with the one male mm -hmm. character where his his main role, I mean, ostensibly it's to write, but really it's kind of just to be a, a whipping post, you know, for a lot of anger. Yeah. And he's just right. constantly sort of apologizing. And, you know, it's like, yes, I know my place. I shouldn't speak. And it, it, that to me didn't feel authentic. You are, you are right. He's given more right. depth throughout the film. But like a lot of films that try to deal with these sorts of subject matter they they kind of just leave i guess class behind because mm. as someone who grew up in around farmers you know and around a lot of people who just were manual laborers and fishermen and stuff like that like yes i i, I get that you can kind of elevate the way people talk to have these sorts of discussions but a lot of people see themselves as workers you know, from this social environment. And yeah, I guess they do kind of explain that this guy left to university. He was kind of rejected by the colony and stuff like that. So he is kind of an outcast. It does kind of make sense for him to 
to not identify maybe with the other male characters, but I don't know. It it just seems kind of a little too convenient that the, the you have this one guy who's just this perfect sort of whipping pose, just this kind of almost pathetic uh, character at some points, as opposed to someone who's, I guess, has a point of view. Right. Yeah, he did. He doesn't have a point of view and he's rendered without a point of view. And again, I think this is part of the fantasy element. Yes. I think it's a fantasy male. Yeah. And if, if this is a work of female imagination, it, it succeeds in some respects in, 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 you know, having this dialogue, this discussion play out with so many points of view and not really having any of them excluded. But at the same time, there there's, it kind of points to a lack of imagination in terms of imagining how the adult men and the adult women can actually coexist. You know, the, the solution mm -hmm. the film finds is just to leave them all behind and raise the younger boys in such a way that they never repeat the mistakes. Now, again, it's, it's a very specific milieu, but if the film is trying to suggest anything beyond this milieu, it does speak to a very profound lack of imagination in terms of seeing how adults can coexist. And mm -hmm. I, just to wrap up this point, I would say too, if you look at a lot of the problems that are, you know, endemic in, amongst younger men, for example, um, you know, lack of, of men being in relationships, um, a profound sense of nihilism, uh, a decline in sort of material conditions. These are problems that, that require some amount of imagination to, you know, I guess, be talked about and expressed in, in art. And... Mm -hmm. uh, it's a good point too that a lot of these problems are ones that women are experiencing too and mm -hmm. to have this conversation happen along gender lines rather than say generational lines class lines mm -hmm. or a mix of the of these sorts of uh, divisions i don't know for me that would make it more relevant mm -hmm. so i guess there are aspects of the film which are very interesting and aspects which are I guess disappointing. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm with you, and this is this is my conflict with the film. I I think it handled some aspects exceptionally well, but when we get to the end of the film, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about this because again, they did kind of like what you're saying, or or what you're. If I can extend your thought, mm. that the solution is to remove themselves from the situation with men and. That decision, if it's meant to be allegorical to our present situation, I don't know what that says. Mm. I don't know what that message is because it's just very odd. I will have to think about this movie and that's why I think it's going to be discussed for decades. I really do think it is mm. because it's capturing this moment right now. But I don't know if it left us with a good ethics. Mm. Very well said. And you are right. It, it is a powerful film, despite all of its weaknesses. Yeah. It's a film I didn't I expect to be... I want to watch it again. Be... Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. Especially for a film that's mm -hmm. very much like a play in how yeah, it's... it's like a play. <laughs> so 12 Angry Women. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, you that's know, kind of... than 12 Angry Men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's a very good point. I mean, it's... I don't know. It's it's a movie I, I, I want to see again as well. A film that can't imagine could be any more different than that uh is the next up on our list <laughs> triangle of sadness nice. the ruben yes. oslin film wow it, it was the winner of the palm d'Or this year or last year at Cannes, mm -hmm. 
And Ruben Ostland mm -hmm. has kind of made a name for himself with the square, with force majeure. He's kind of this merry prankster character in a way where he's just, he's making these films which are very much kind of absurdist, parroting or satirizing a lot of kind of contemporary issues in a way that seems to combine like, uh, you know, Euro a European art house sensibility with just like the, the most crass sort of, you know, uh, gross out humor. And so I, I, I'm really curious what you think about this guy in this film. Yeah, this is the only film I know of him. I've never seen, I looked him up later and apparently the French love him. Mm -hmm. He's made these two or three well-regarded films. This is the first, this is my first experience of him. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed this movie. Let me start there. It, and that is, I wasn't bored. And I was, you know, I, I could have stayed with this film as long as it was going to go. I don't know how it did that. Um, I just think that <laughs> the shooting style and the absurdity of certain situations, I didn't know where it was going to go. So there's that. I mean, I, I just... I enjoyed watching this movie. Mm -hmm. The politics, you know, there's a side of me that absolutely loved the storm. So this storm happens mm. and uh, the, the captain is a drunk. The one time when he finally is able to come out and have a dinner with it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cruise of very wealthy people. Mm -hmm. And he finally comes out and they have the captain's dinner and it's a stormy night. And, you know, they're showing the food, you know, they're describing all of the food and it just becomes a vomit session <laughs> and the storm gets worse and worse. The captain goes into his quarters with this Russian, uh, this oligarch. very obese, yeah, Russian oligarch and, and they start quoting sections from Karl Marx over the intercom to all of the <laughs> drunkenly quoting Karl Marx over the intercom to all of the, uh, all of the people. And, and the whole movie is so on the nose, but it's okay with a movie like this. I think it's supposed to kind of do that. It's yeah. supposed to hit you over the head with a hammer. And I, you know, enjoyed that scene. It was heavy handed, but I enjoyed it. It, it was, mm. It was fun. And then, and then, so you've almost got this, this audio element of that happening, of them drunkenly reading about class divisions and revolution while these people, while these wealthy people are vomiting and, you know, gliding across the floor of their rooms in their own vomit <laughs> yeah. during this storm. It was just outrageous. Um, I don't know if I would call it a great movie. Um, that, you know, it's, it's, I think it's playing, I, I don't know, you know, when this went into production, but th there is a zeitgeist of this kind of thing right now, a, a white Lotus kind of kill the rich zeitgeist that's going on. You know, mm -hmm. we as global citizens know that the wealthy are fucking everything up for <laughs> all of us yeah. and we are powerless to do it. So we enjoy the jouissance of watching something like this unfold mm -hmm. i'm very curious your take what what did you think of it at least here we have a film where there's now we're getting to the class division kind of thing it's a little hammered over your head uh it's not subtle it's not allegorical it's direct and it's in your face what did you think of it i agreed with a lot of what you said you know i think that i i've seen the square and i've seen force majeure 
And I've seen a number of interviews with Ruben Ostlund, and I know that he's someone who, for example, draws from YouTube videos and things like that. Like he's he's not just I'm I'm sure he probably read like Thomas Piketty, you know, and I'm sure he's read Karl Marx and I'm sure he's aware of the class divisions that he's commenting on, but he's also someone who seems very much enmeshed with contemporary social media culture and things like that. And I always find his films both like very interesting. I'm always glad I've seen them, but there's also something unsatisfying about them. I mean, I think there are parts of Triangle Sadness, much like his other films, that I think are great. I think the whole opening sequence is great. I think the the kind of relationship between the two leads, the two models, and their kind of super awkward dinner conversation, and the way they're trying to balance the fact that they're extremely wealthy and privileged with, you know, these kind of gender dynamics and stuff like that. Mm. Can I jump in on that on that opening twenty minutes or so? Yeah, yeah, sure. What's interesting about that is you could have taken those twenty those opening twenty minutes or so. It could have been a half hour. I'm not sure. You could have just taken it out, and it would have been a two hour movie. Mm. You could have opened the film with the, with those two, the young couple, on the boat. You could have just started the film there, and you wouldn't have lost a thing. But I did kind of like having that. That it's almost like the that opening twenty minutes is its own little movie. Yes. Because it has an arc, you know, they end up in the hotel room and talking to each other and deciding they're going to be together. It's almost like its own little film. And the interesting thing is they play the role of pretenders or uh, what would you call it? Imposters. Right. Because they don't have a lot of money, but they get some kind of something from Instagram or something because they're Instagram influencers. I think they're, she's an influencer, yeah. Yeah, she's an influencer. And so somehow she gets stuff for doing this. I'm not sure they explain it in the film, but you know, they're not wealthy, but they kind of play wealthy because they're arguing over the, you know, in in the beginning of the movie, they're arguing over who's going to pay the bill. Right. Right. The strange thing with that, and I'm interrupting your thought and I'm sorry about that. Um, but I just want to, you know, jump in on that opening sequence. Sure. The strange thing about it is I almost enjoyed that first 20 minutes more than I enjoyed the rest of the film. Yeah. I, I wanted to see how that was going to play out more in terms of a relationship between two people. Yeah. Because their relationship, once they got on the boat, in a sense got abandoned, except that it didn't because, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> the, the, the boat is attacked by terrorists right. or pirates, I guess. So everybody, you know, who survives that incident, there's like five or six of them, they get marooned on this beach and they have to survive. And again, the idea here is that now all of your class privileges go away and the the lower class woman who cleans the toilets or whatever, because she knows how to survive, she becomes the king of the tribe, you know, the leader of the tribe. Yep. And so you do see that those two, um, the young couple, it plays out a little bit because the guy becomes kind of her sex slave. <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to to jump in on that on that opening sequence. That could have been a, traveled a whole different way. And I thought we were going to get more of that and refer back to it. And we didn't really. It's almost like two separate films going on. Well, it's interesting because the title itself, that's kind of given right. to us in the opening sequence. And it's... right. The opening sequence is basically just this photo shoot audition sort of thing. And 
they tell us that triangle of sadness, yeah, between models is this area between your eyebrows and the very top of your nose, uh, like the bridge of your nose, that tends to get wrinkled, um, especially if you're, <laughs> you know, you're uh, showing too much facial expression. But it could also mm -hmm. double for kind of the the triangle of the Bermuda Triangle, you know, a place where a lot of ships mm. get shipwrecked and and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so there is this kind of resonance, I guess, between these two parts of the film, and the title kind of ties them together. It's still not satisfying for me. I did enjoy the the opening sequence more than the rest of the film. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, me too. And mm -hmm. I wanted to see more. I guess of this world of of the models and just yeah. like how you know endlessly superficial it is and yeah I was hoping for that I loved how the film kind of pointed out this certain type of uh you know we might call woke capitalist or something like that who's like yes uses all the language of of wokeness or social justice in this purely performative way where you know, mm -hmm. it's it's purely about status and currency and, you know, left to their own de devices, they're just oblivious to the whole thing. You know, they're, they obviously right. have zero interest in it. And I, I felt like the film was very interesting in that regard. But I guess after mm -hmm. a while, oh, and I got to shout out to the, the boat scene with the captain. I mean, seeing Woody Har Harrelson uh, as the captain, when he finally emerges from his cabin, and, you know, it's it's clear he just despises everyone on this boat. He hates mm -hmm. being there. Was was yeah, great. He's done. He's done with it. <laughs> he's done with the whole thing. And yeah. also uh, the the oligarch, he's played by this guy named, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Slatko Burek. He was in... Um, he was great. He's great. He was in a, a trilogy called the Pusher Trilogy, which is, uh, it's was early films made by Nicholas Winding Refn. And um, he was fantastic in that as kind of this mob boss. Mm. And so it was really, really great to see him again in this role. So mm -hmm. I guess the film is is going out on a limb enough. It's pointed enough. There's enough to chew on, even if it is over the top and in your face and, and very on the nose. I think there's enough to chew on. It takes enough risks and it's just mm -hmm. interesting enough that even if there are sections of the film, which I find just ridiculous, disappointing, uh, testing my patience, like the the mm -hmm. whole extended vomiting scene. I mean, it just really reminded me of watching like Problem <laughs> Child 2 or something like that, where it's like, are they really going to keep this going on for five more minutes, you know? But, or Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Yeah, yeah. It has that quality to it. But I, part of me, you know, identifies, I guess, with the Woody Harrelson character. I mean, he's... Yeah, me too. Absolutely. There is this anarchist quality that it's uh, mm -hmm. it's hard not to appreciate. Yeah, for sure. Well, that brings us to the final film on our list of, of the Best Picture nominees, and that's Tar, directed by Todd Field. Now, you've done, you and Cece did a whole podcast on this. Yes, we did. Would you be able to kind of, I guess, give your take on this film, you know, may also whet people's appetite to, to go and listen to the full podcast? Because I really enjoy that podcast and your discussion of this film. No, thank you. I think we both really enjoyed it. We, we talked about a few things. We talked about the Juilliard scene. We One of the concepts that we dwelled on quite a bit was how if you imagine that she is a man, 
the whole movie changes. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing we talked about is just what a fascinating world it is being a symphony conductor. Yes. And then on top of that, this strange privileged existence that they, that she lived in. I, I mean, obviously she is a original character. This isn't, I don't think this is based on anyone specific, but you know, another thing that we talked about again, like, like you and I talked about before is we don't really, um, know what the, what the impropriety is or what the crime is or what the situation is. We know that there's a suicide, but it's all dealing with the, with the outcome. And it's about someone who is so psychopathic. I don't know if that's the sociopathic. I don't know hmm. which one is the right term, but she cannot conceive that she did anything wrong. And this is part of what was happening with, I think, a lot of people in, when Me Too broke, is it seemed like there was a lot of men who, in power, who thought, no, it's inconceivable that I'm doing anything wrong. Right. And But you have here a woman. Yes. And it's it's beautifully done. It's beautifully filmed. It's almost, It's like an art... It's very much an art film, and it's edited like an art film. It has very strange ambiguities, like her hearing things, uh, these kind of things that happen that don't get answered. Todd Field, I guess, is going to put you in a situation, and he's not going to orient you to that situation fully. Yep. And he's just going to let you deal with what's happening. Yep. And you're going to figure it out. You're eventually going to figure it out. But he's he's going to let the he's going to let the apparatus of cinema allow you to figure it out. And I thought that was very impressive. Yes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree with you in the, in that regard. I w I was kind of blown away by the movie, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, me too. Number one, because Todd Field is a guy who I was first introduced to as Nick Nightingale in Eyes Wide Shut. And he was a household name for me as an actor. Wait a minute. Slow down. He was in Eyes Wide Shut? He was the piano player. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So he's hmm. he started out as an actor before he became yeah, I heard about that. more well-known mm -hmm. as a director. And he, he talked about, you know, being on set for Eyes Wide Shut and learning a lot from Kubrick and just kind of mm -hmm. trying to absorb the way he made films. Todd Field is obviously a very different filmmaker. He's only made three feature films, and it's been 15 right. years since his last feature, if you can believe that. Mm -hmm. I think he made uh, Little Children and In the Bedroom before this film, mm -hmm. Tar. and Watching a lot of interviews with him and Kate Blanchett and the other members of the, the cast and crew, I just really got a sense for how in-depth this character was. I mean, Field seemed to know every aspect of her life. And not all mm. of it appears in the film, but every choice made in the film was informed by just how extensive and well-rounded this character is. And mm -hmm. I think Field seems to be trying to tackle our present moment with things like, you know, cancel culture, uh, with the role that, say, social media plays in dealing mm -hmm. with events like this, but also actual abuses of power that take place. He's trying to mm -hmm. look at the present moment in its full ambiguity 
in its full richness. Right. And it's no wonder that you see both people on the right and people on the left identifying with this movie because it is so rich with with mm-hmm. meaning, but also Field brilliantly sets it up so that we're never given any assurance about how we're supposed to feel about this character. We're yes. never yes. really pointed to feel necessarily a certain way and he never lets us reduce the character and for right. me that is a victory against everything wrong with the time that we're living in because for sure i think the ultimate thing that he's addressing is and i'm not going to give it a name because i think it in the spirit of the film it's more about kind of describing the problem than naming it uh which yep. is kind of this reductionism of everything you know mm-hmm. and this constant demand to to condemn to state your position on a matter so that you can be placed within the social field as as a good person or a bad person so that your your mm-hmm. moral worth can be judged and you can be appraised based on what you say and who you support and whatnot and this film is kind of saying enough you know like mm-hmm. It refuses to do that. And because it's so well-directed, well-scripted, and most importantly, well-acted. I mean, Kate Blanchett gives just a monumental performance in this film. Yeah, absolutely. It just does not give you that dopamine hit of moral assurance or moral certitude. And as a result, no one has been able to pin this film down, which is incredible given Mm -hmm. the time that we lived in. Richard Brody penned this absurd review of this film where he's saying this is, uh, you know, this is regressive filmmaking at its finest. He's, you know, Todd Field and all the cast and their main goal is just to mock you know, the left, social justice movements, and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, what film did you watch? Yeah, what planet do you live on? Yeah, because the film is doing the exact opposite of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Juilliard Mm -hmm. scene, and I know in your review you said, like, you kind of, you identified with her critiques of this guy, Max, you know? And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's, I kind of felt the same way where I was like, yes, I mean, she's pointing out the absurdity of, of, a lot of what he's saying and this total like uh reduction and also just dis- his dismissiveness towards these great artists from the past uh at the mm-hmm. same time you know you see her later on in the film kind of fall victim to i guess not heeding some of the not his criticism because I, I don't think a lot of his criticisms really make any sense under scrutiny but there yeah. is, there's almost a warning in that scene that she doesn't heed, you know, in terms That's of, it. Yeah. That's it. So she, there's a complexity to that scene that isn't just which side you're on. Yes. It's building character. It's building her character. Yes. It's early in the film and we know that this is going to get her in trouble. Whoever is the imbecile that you just mentioned who penned that review seemed to miss the point of what of what a story does of what a narrative does it's it's right. you know that's someone who's reading too many 
articles on the internet, you know, about popular culture. Right. The fact is that you can see some points that she's making. And at the same time, like you said, this is going to, you know, we're, we're seeing her character and there's some problems with her character. Yes. There's some problems in the way that she deals with his ignorance of, or his dismissal of Bach. Yes. Right. So it's not cut and dried. It's not painted by the numbers. Yeah. And, and you're right. It is building character, which I think Todd, Todd Field and the whole team and, and Kate Blanchett, who, by the way, you know, she learned German for this film. She learned how to conduct. Yeah, she got back to playing piano. She got back to playing piano. I mean, it's just, it's an astounding performance. And yeah. they, they just trust so much in the idea of character, you know. And mm-hmm. again, the idea that, that everyone is ambiguous, that right. everyone has depth. And that the problem mm-hmm. is reducing them. Once we start reducing people yes. in situations to make these two ideas, moral mm-hmm. condemnations, and to to these ideas or even slogans, I, you know, a lot of times they're not even mm-hmm. ideas; yeah. they're just representations right. of good or bad. Then mm-hmm. things fall apart, you know. And yeah. the film it does this with with this full arsenal of both you know character and, and acting, but also, as you pointed out, all these sort of aesthetic tricks. Mm-hmm. that he does as well. Yeah. This movie reminded me at, in points of uh, Possession, that that great uh, Polish film. We did talk about that, I think, in our podcast. You know, I, I've yes. also seen comparisons to um, Haneke's films, and yes. I can see that as well. Definitely. This this movie reminded the, me a the lot of Haneke's films. Yeah, yeah. Because there there is a kind of a, a, a coldness, a detached quality yeah. to the camera. Yeah. And stuff like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at the same right. time, like this incredibly rich portrayal of character. But mm-hmm. one of the things that he does that's really incredible is he he stays in her subjectivity the entire film. So you hear the sounds that she's yeah, he hearing. Does. You hear, for yes. example, she goes for a run and you hear this screaming, which, by the way, that scream comes from the Blair Witch Project, apparently. Uh, oh, so Yeah. You, you hear these sounds that she's hearing. And one thing I noticed, I saw the film twice at home and in theaters. I went to see it in theaters. And one mm. thing I noticed was was how often there are these rumbles in the background. Oh, okay. And mm, nice use of the subs. Yeah. It's something I'd read that Todd uh, Field and his editor did a lot of the Foley work and sound recording uh, on their own while they were editing. And okay, because they had to move to some remote kind of castle or something in in Edinburgh mm. due to COVID restrictions, and and they ended up doing a lot of this themselves. So I assume that he's responsible there for for putting in a lot of these kind of you know very subliminal type sounds. And there's this great quote from an article where he says, "There's no room tone in this movie." And oh, interesting. I love that idea that every kind of sound is 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 kind of created and and put in there but it's it's mixed so low that you you more just kind of start to sense it after a while this this almost foreboding mm-hmm. uh, sense that her psychology is starting to fracture and that it while she's denying to herself that something is happening that there's something is coming that that her position her prestige is about to crumble you sense that some that danger is lurking 
and that she's about to lose her perch. Yeah, I really like the way you put that because that is an element of sound design that when used creatively really is what sound uniquely can do, which is to present a sense of the future, pre present a sense of what's coming. Mm. So it's interesting what you said about no room tone. I'd like to see it in the theater. Um, we have some decent speakers here, but I didn't take note of that. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, it's something that really struck out or stuck out to me when I was watching it in theaters. And, you know, this film has a great score, too. I mean, the the creative yes. score, the original score is a little bit more subtle. But I mean, the the use of of uh, Mahler's fifth and and mm. there's a couple of great uh, jazz pieces throughout the film, too, that are, mm -hmm. are really nice. So I was just really blown away by this movie. And I'm I'm so happy that there's a movie that's just making no concessions to, yeah. you know, poor attention spans, uh, yeah. demands for moral condemnation, social media. Mm -hmm. I, there's a quote in the film where, where she says, um, the architect of your soul is social media, you know, and yeah, I know. I just yeah, love great. that line. And yeah, kind of like uh, Rooney, some of Rooney Mara's lines that just hit you. There were some lines that Kate Blanchett said in this film that just really hit you. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I just I can't say enough good things about this film. Yeah, me too. Should we talk a little bit about who we think might win some of these? Yeah. So let's why don't we do the um, the who will and who should game? OK, we do that. Absolutely. Yes. So. Do you want to start off with best picture since we've just discussed it? Sure. So yeah, let's just kind of let's just kind of zip through these. Well, for me, it's it's just a very simple way to go. Who will win everything everywhere all at once? Who should win Tar? Okay. So my whole let me just give an overview. My whole metric on this year's Academy Awards is the question of how the Academy currently feels about Steven Spielberg. Hmm. That's what I think is is the metric in this award situation. Interesting. So I decided to go with the idea that the the academy, even as it's growing internationally and you know getting younger or rather <laughs> not as old as it was before, <laughs> I'm still going to go with nostalgia for Spielberg because you know the academy might feel a little bit that he was snubbed with West Side Story, even though I didn't. I'm alone in this opinion, but I don't understand why he made that movie and I was not knocked out by it. Seems like mm. everybody was knocked out by it. Mm -hmm. I thought he did things with West Side Story that were, I thought, quite poor in, in his decision making. Anyway, I think that there is some feeling that he was maybe um, a bit snubbed. And I think it's around the time and he is around the age of being celebrated in a nostalgic sense. So I know I said I would be brief, but <laughs> I think best picture, what will win is the Fablemans and what should win is Tar. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm viewing who will win purely through the metric of like who wins the other awards, like the Directors Guild, the Producers yeah. Guild, the SAG, the Indie Spirit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And True. I don't know if that's the usual, I guess it is the usual predictor of who will win because it's kind of the Academy voters who are voting in a lot of these things are the same people who are going to vote for, you know, the Oscars. Um, but yeah, but I don't then know. Coda comes out of nowhere. Yeah, that's right. 
and Parasite and these other films. So I, yeah, we may be surprised, but I have a depressing feeling we won't be. Mm, okay. at, at least in terms of everything everywhere all at once. Let's go to Best Director next. So the yeah. nominees are Martin McDonough, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, Steven Spielberg, Todd Field, and Ruben Ausland. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Well, okay. Who will win the Daniels or Daniels for everything, everywhere, all at once for the same reasons I just gave? Who should win? There's two people, I think, on this list. Well, I think Todd Field should win, to be honest. Yeah. I would be happy with Steven Spielberg or Martin McDonough winning because I I think Mm -hmm. all three of those films were, you know, kind of flawlessly directed. I agree. I think they're very deserving of of a win. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would be my my selection. What about you? Okay, for me, I have who I have who will win Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. and I have who should win Todd Field. Okay, so you're going with the Spielberg theory again. I'm going with the Spielberg for the for the very top end. Okay, okay, yeah. Do you want to talk about the the acting categories for a second? Because well, let's let's do this because I haven't seen enough of the films to be able to give a should but i do have a couple of thoughts overall and then maybe you can take it over from there okay i am going to predict michelle williams winning for lead actress oh wow and i'm going to predict colin farrell for actor okay wow but that's not who i want who i want is kate blanchett Mm-hmm. And Carl, uh, and, sorry for the for the for the actress. It's it's not necessarily Michelle Williams who I want, even though I thought she was fantastic, and I th- do think that she carried the film, that she was the center of the film. Mm-hmm. I I think she will win. I I would like to see Kate Blanchett win, and but yes, that I would also I also do want to see Colin Farrell win. Okay, okay. So other than that, I have no authority because I haven't seen um, a lot of the actor films. Okay. And, uh, supporting. Well, in terms of the the main acting categories, um, so for actress in a leading role, we have Kate Blanchett, uh, Anna de, de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for To Leslie, Michelle Williams, and Michelle Yeoh. I think Michelle Yeoh will probably win. I'm kind of anticipating. Oh, no, no, no. And everything, everywhere, all at once, kind of. You're, sweep. you're, yeah, you're calling a sweep. I, I, I don't see that happening. But go ahead. Well, I guess I just have I a know, very... I know with the other awards, yeah. I have a very nihilistic yeah. sense of where the Academy is having. <laughs> and uh, so I'm predicting that this film will win and, and clean up in a lot of the categories. Who should win? I think Kate Blanchett should win, no question. Yeah, I think so too. I think there's just... Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where if she doesn't win, it's going to be kind of like... You know, maybe five, maybe 10 years, people look back and like, what were they on? Yes, precisely. Precisely. We'll see. I mean, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. In terms of the acting or the actor in a lead role category, we have Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Paul Mescal for After Sun, and Bill Nye for Living. Uh, I must confess, I have not seen Living or The Whale yet, so I really can't comment on Brendan Fraser. I know he's been much discussed. I think, hmm, that's a tough one. He could win, Brendan Fraser. I think, honestly, maybe Austin Butler. 
might win. He's been talked about a lot. He has, and and that that's a if you were putting money down, that's a good will, a good bet. But but I still think here's here's why I picked Colin Farrell. I think everybody wants to hear his speech. I think he's going to give a beautiful speech, uh-huh. and people love listening to him talking. And I think that that's why he's going to. <laughs> I think that's why he's going to win. I also think he deserves to win. Yeah, I I think he gave the more subtle performance. I think he. Mm-hmm. I think he deserves and entertaining. I, I, he would be my choice for winning this category. I also got to say, I was really happy to see Paul Mescal and After Sun nominated because I think he gave a really beautiful performance in that. Yeah, I'm I'm going to disagree with you there. I, I After Sun didn't hit me. Um, I thought that the the little girl who was in the film was sensational. Mm. But Paul Mescal's performance, I, I think that's a film where I needed to know what had happened. Yeah. I didn't want the ambiguity in that film. I'm usually a fan of ambiguity, but I needed to know what he was going through for me to buy into his performance. I guess I... That's just my... That's my That's my feeling. Yeah. I felt like he was in, in large part kind of being viewed through the perspective of... Number one, he's being remembered in a lot of the movie. So... Yes. And he's, he's being remembered that's from true. the point of view of a child. And so... Mm-hmm. You see this restlessness, this sadness in this guy. And throughout the film, I, I kind of felt like the audience was put in the position of of the girl and especially the woman mm-hmm. after the girl grew up and is looking yeah. back and looking through these tapes where it's like, what was he thinking? She doesn't know. Yeah. What was he going through? You know, and it's this very sad attempt to kind of interpret uh, what this person is going through. Yeah, I think that's a good point, but um, I still feel that because yeah, from from the idea of perspective and point of view, I I see I see what you're saying, but for me, there's also me as someone who's watching the film. Mm-hmm. So her perspective can't, at least for me, overtake what it is that I'm feeling as I'm watching the film, which I think is what good cinema should do is communicate the feeling, mm-hmm. and. I just didn't see anything exceptional in what he was going through. I didn't, I didn't understand the gravity because I didn't get get any sense. And so, he could have been like any normal father, hmm. you know. So that was my feeling, and yeah, we we can disagree on that one. That's yeah, yeah, for sure. I I guess there was just something in the aesthetic of the film and his performance that it, it, there was a wistfulness and then kind of the sad nostalgic. Hmm feeling that for me it resonated but i i get you know mm. that it it may not have clicked for you because yeah it's yeah. it is very amb- ambiguous before we move on to the other categories i just want to quickly mention like there were a couple of snubs in the acting categories i mean we already mentioned uh viola davis and daniel detweiler but i also wanted to mention mia goth mm. for pearl because i i really feel like this was kind of an over-the-top horror movie but mia goth is someone i really i've really enjoyed her work and I mm. really enjoyed her work in this film. And I feel like, mm. hey, if we're going to be nominating genre films now, like why are we continuing to snub horror films and horror performances and stuff like that? You know, it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's kind of mind numbing to me. I, I should also mention too, I think Adrian Brody should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Blonde. He gave mm. a, a really fantastic performance as Arthur Miller in that. And I... We've already talked about biopic performances and how limiting they can be, but I just got to say, I don't know, there's something like 
watching his performance was like eating a nice bowl of like chicken noodle soup. Like there was just something very <laughs> rich and great about it. I, I don't know. It was just a very satisfying performance. And I think mm. I really feel like he nailed that. But that's neither here nor there. Let's let's move on to screenplay. Okay. In terms of screenplay, for original screenplay, we have Banshees, Everything Everywhere, Fableman's Tar, and Triangle, who I think will win, once again, Everything Everywhere, who should win. I'm going to say Tar or Banshees should win, because Banshees is, is okay. so well written as a, as a piece of dialogue, and the dialogue's so fantastic. Uh, Tar, there's no deeper character in the list of nominees this year. And just for the fact that he was able to conceive of such a rich character, I think he deserves a win as well. Mm. How about you? For best, yeah, for best original, I what I think will win, because I think that screenplays are sometimes the ones that are granted to, it seems from the Academy, to really appreciate the writing. Mm. And I know that sounds obvious, but <laughs> what I'm saying is it's more often going to give something to the outsider that really touched us. Mm. And so I think my will and my should are the same, and that's Banshees. Okay. Well, I hope you're right. That would be great to, yeah, me too. to see it win. <laughs> my goodness. If, if Everything Everywhere wins Best Original Screenplay as well, that will be a very interesting mm. night. It would be a terrible Academy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about adapted screenplay. We have All Quiet on the Western Front, sure. Glass Onion, Living, Top Gun, Maverick, and Women Talking, because that was based off of a novel or adapted from a novel. Mm -hmm. What do you think there? I guess I've been stating it first, so I'll go first. What should win and what will win? I could see Women Talking winning. And what should win, I would say it would be a toss-up between Women Talking and All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, I, I would mm. like to see All Quiet on the Western Front win that, to be honest. But I wouldn't be disappointed okay. with Women Talking winning it, winning it either, just because I feel like it was, mm -hmm. as an adaptation, pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, what so you think? I felt that, yeah, I felt that this category was quite weak. Yeah. And there's nothing really that I... Um, that I feel is a strong contender either in the will or should. But for will win, I have women talking. And for should win, I have women talking. Mm. And I think that the problem of women talking is it's very, again, expository. It's very on the nose at times. There's some flat characterization that happens, some throwaway characterization but I do, but the reason why I think it should win is because I think it will be talked about. And I think it, it is compelling for all of the reasons that I mentioned, and it is effective. And there's a magical quality to the screenplay where the dialogue does not seem academic, mm. even though there's some very heavy stuff going on. So yes. I would, I think it should win of this category. And I think it also will win. Okay, interesting. And yeah, I agree with you. It, it, it manages to convey points of view that seem to come from academic, academia-inspired social media posts. And yet, mm -hmm. it never feels like that. You feel like real people are talking, yeah. or at least, you know, archetypal versions of real people in some ways. Mm -hmm. Listen, I, I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of go through a couple of like 
a few snubs before we kind of get into some final thoughts sure. and give our list of maybe what we felt like were the best films of 2022, irregardless of what was nominated mm-hmm. uh, at the Academy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just wanted to bring up a couple points. First of all, I, I think The Batman is is a film I want to mention, not because I think it was a particularly great film. I'm I'm really sick to death of superhero movies, but I did want to point out two elements of the film, which I thought were pretty interesting in terms of Hollywood filmmaking, which is the cinematography of the movie. I felt like the look of the movie was genuinely interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I watched a, a kind of breakdown of this and I'd have to see more of it, but it was interesting just kind of how imperfect the anamorphic image of this film looked. And, you know, there were there were some kind of focus aberrations that I noticed in this film. It, there was just, it was beautiful to look at. And mm. it felt like kind of, in some ways, the height of digital filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It looked different than other superhero movies. And I, I really feel like it had, I don't know, such an interesting aesthetic that honestly, it, it carried me through a lot of the movie. Um, mm. That and the soundtrack, which I feel like the soundtrack mm-hmm. is... Yeah, it's very on brand for a Batman movie, but it's still really atmospheric. I've I've walked around sometimes just kind of at night, you know, putting the the soundtrack for this movie on and it's like it's so atmospheric, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't normally say this about superhero movies, but I don't know, for me mm-hmm. that kind of stuck out. Did you see The Batman? Yeah, I saw it and I I agree with you on the look and mm-hmm. it it had a um you know, I like there's this old saying from, um, you know, film noir filmmaking that the great thing about film noir is that the blacks were really black. Mm. And I thought it did black <laughs> very well. Um, but I left the movie going, I will never see another Batman movie again. I'm just so <laughs> tired of it. I don't know why we keep repeating this over and over. So yes. I agree with you. Can I give you a very, very, very dark horse, not dark horse, that's the wrong term, unknown film, I think, that I would have loved to see nominated for cinematography? Yeah, absolutely. And that is a Netflix movie called Athena. Oh, yes, yes. Did you see it? I did, yeah. That was an impressive feat it of was. cinematography. It really was. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it wasn't even nominated. And... No, it wasn't. Just the number of long takes. Yeah, people. I, I just hope everybody got out of that movie without getting injured. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, it's... I totally agree with you. That should have been nominated for Best Cinematography. I don't think... Personally, I, I thought Bardo was beautiful to look at. And I feel like that deserves its place. But Elvis does not, in my yeah. opinion. Oh, okay. I, I, I can see why Elvis was nominated. Um, I see where you're coming from there. Yeah. Um, what else What else do you think in terms of snubs? Uh, just two more points, really. I, I think sure. Babylon and the Northman deserve nominations. You know, Babylon's the mm-hmm. Damien Chazelle film. The Northman is the Robert Eggers film. I mean, at least best directing, I feel like, because both films... Mm-hmm. Babylon was... was critically bashed and didn't do well at the box office so it didn't really have a chance and i actually recorded Mm. a whole podcast on this which we haven't i haven't released yet with my friend sebastian simone so that will be coming out Mm -hmm. soon where we get into 
great this film and it's it's got a lot of interesting history in it about the silent era so for mm. me that would that deserves something the northman as well that that was critically well received it didn't do as well at the box mm. office but i feel like it deserved the best directing nomination and mm-hmm. a film that deserved to be nominated for best international film is a movie called return to soul which i happen to catch at the Busan International Film Festival. It was directed by Davy mm. Cho, who's a, a French-Cambodian director, mm. whose work I've admired for years. He did a, his last film was called Diamond okay. Island. And mm. this is a movie about uh, an adopted Korean woman played by first-time actress Park Ji Min, who goes back to Seoul simply because her flight to Japan is kind of has been rerouted. And she ends up staying mm. there and trying to find her biological parents. And it's just a really interesting character study. So uh, that's one that definitely should have been nominated, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't really have any snubs. Um, I don't think that I saw, other than what we've already talked about, I don't think I saw a great movie this year. Mm. No, I don't think I saw, other than uh, Tar and um banshees and i thought the fablemans was great there wasn't anything that really knocked me out last year i saw let me put it this way last year i saw two perfect movies and people might disagree with me Mm -hmm. coda and drive my car okay and this year i didn't see a perfect movie except maybe tar Mm. Uh, every movie seemed a little flawed in one way or another um, I, well, and I'll say Banshees too. I, what I mean by perfect movies, nothing snubbed that I thought was a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Um, every movie this year that I saw seemed kind of flawed in one way or another. And I'll think, you know, I think about movies like the Northman decision to leave the Batman, Nope, Prey, After Sun, Pinocchio, all of these, uh, films I enjoyed, but didn't really knock me out. The Northman, I very much enjoyed except for Nicole Kidman and I love Nicole Kidman but hmm. she made me cringy in that movie oh wow um, I don't know what it was her her accent or her facial expressions or something just and I really think she's fantastic but there was something awkward in her performance I thought right well yeah I I didn't really pick up on that for me it was it was fine mm. um, but I get what mm. you're saying it was kind okay. of an underwhelming year wasn't it yeah 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 um yeah so i'm a big nerd about making top 10 lists i yeah do it i religiously like make a list of films and try to see as many of them as possible there's still some some films Mm -hmm. i haven't seen i mean like i haven't seen the whale uh, simply because it's taken forever to get to theaters in korea but based on what i've seen um can i give my top 10 of of the year absolutely i'm looking forward to this Okay, so I'm going to start with number 10, uh, Bones and All, the the latest Luca Guadagnino film. Uh, it was mm. it didn't do very well commercially. It, it didn't do well critically, I don't think, either. I saw it at Biff, uh, the previous edition of Biff. It stars Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell. And it's a cannibal movie. It's a cannibal love story, which given... I heard about this. What happened with, you know, the whole Army Hammer situation and Call Me By Your Name, it's kind of, you know, darkly ironic in some ways, but I don't know. I I haven't heard anything as to whether, you know, Luca was planning on making this before the story broke and 
and or whether it's something that he kind of was drawn to after the the army hammer situation unfolded but yeah this movie just has it has a lot of flaws um there's a lot of missed opportunities there. Like I, I felt like the Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score was one of their most underwhelming. I, I feel like it was a little too grisly for me. And I'm not someone who's normally turned off by violence and stuff like that, but I don't know, man, I can only watch so much cannibalism on screen before I'm just like, <laughs> I can't deal with this, you know? Yeah. Um, that said, I appreciate that he didn't shy away from that. And I feel like mm. the movie as a as a statement in some ways is or as an expression, it's it's kind of asking the question, can monsters be loved or do monsters deserve love? And mm. as a portrait of outsiders in America in the eighties, it's like there's a lot of romanticism there and a lot of nostalgia for me personally. Mm. And mm -hmm. just seeing these kind of, I don't know, road trips through, you know, American landscapes with these two outsiders on the run, these two like kind of doomed teenage lovers. There's, I don't know, there's a lot to like there, I think. And, and that's kind of why I was drawn to it. Yeah. That's, that's what I'd say about Bones and All. Okay. I've not seen it. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely worth a watch. I would say my number nine is a movie I know you didn't like, and I believe you may have turned it off uh, a few minutes into the movie, but this is Bardo or a yeah. false chronicle of a handful of tales, or I, I forget the the full title. But this mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. uh, this is the latest from Alejandro Inarritu, and who I normally love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, The Revenant, and uh, yeah, th there's just so many great films in his his filmography. I saw this in theaters at Biff. So I really feel like that was a fundamentally different viewing experience than watching it at home. Yeah, that could be the case. Yeah. But I know, I believe you watched like 15 minutes of this and then just had enough. Is that right? I think I watched about 40 minutes of it and okay. then it had enough. Yeah. I was waiting for some story to happen. Yeah. It does test your patience, I did it? like it. I, I The opening shot is fantastic. Yeah. And then things get really weird and it's obviously you know kind of this dreamy you know it's uh yeah kind of a dreamy um hallucinogenic kind of thing and i normally love that kind of thing but i didn't have a story yeah yeah and the narrative is very winding and it takes so many detours and mm. I have to say, I mean, this movie is number nine, mostly because the highs are so highs. I think this is a very inconsistent movie. I think there are diversions and detours the movie makes, which throw it dangerously off track, you know. But mm. when the movie reaches high points, like there's this whole dance hall sequence in Mexico, it's just astounding, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Mm. And it's just so rich with ideas. And overall when it kind of hits you what, what this whole thing is about and what this whole hallucination actually is, it, it is quite powerful, I would say. Okay, okay. And seeing it on a, a huge screen in Busan, I think the one of the biggest screens in the city, it, it's kind of something, once you kind of just give yourself up over to it, it starts to just kind of pull you in. It, it becomes like a drug in some ways. 
Mm. And I think it's unfortunate that this movie, A, has a lot of sections that are weak and probably unnecessary, and B, uh, for a lot of people, is only available on Netflix, where I don't really feel like you're getting the full experience. I've also kind of made the joke a few times, like, we're used to seeing the director's cuts of films where studios have meddled with them and cut out scenes that were essential to the film. I honestly, for some of these recent Netflix movies, I want to see the studio cuts. You know, I want to see Bardo with a Mm. lot of these scenes taken out, you know, and just see how it plays. Yeah. Okay. Number eight for me was Top Gun Maverick. We've already talked about this. Yes, I know Mm. it's a dumb action movie. But it's a very good action movie. But it's as good as a dumb action movie can be. The aerial photography is genuinely amazing. What Tom Cruise and the crew did to be in the cockpit doing this is incredible. It's anti-green screen. It's anti-CGI in in so many ways. And uh, I saw a headline once where it's like, Top Gun is just kind of like an affirmation of American competence. You know, at a time where so many institutions seem to be kind of failing or incompetence or something like that. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, I think there's something to that. I think that may be why it resonated in some ways. Mm. And and we should say Jennifer Connelly looks fantastic. She does. She does. Yeah. It's um no, it's it's everything you want out of an action movie. Yeah. Number seven for me was Return to Soul, which I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the David Show movie. Uh, I felt like okay. this was, you know, a much more interesting movie than, you know, if you want to talk about like an immigrant experience or, you know, the kind of identity crisis that comes along with being, say, an immigrant or, uh, you know, a related issue and uh, adopted and, and having to grow up in a different culture, this is the movie. You know, it's not everything everywhere all at once. This mm. is the movie. This is a movie okay. with almost like a, a Freddie Quell like lead actress where she's just wildly all over the place. And just when you think she's gonna she's found resolution and happiness and she's she's her soul is quieted down, she just does the the one thing she shouldn't. And mm. I know friends of mine were just like so frustrated by this movie, but I feel like it was such a fascinating character study that um, that I have to recommend it. And yeah, going through the rest of the list, there's not a lot of surprises. Number six is Babylon for me. Uh, number five is The Fablemans. Number four is After Sun. Number three is The Banshees of Inishirin. Number two mm-hmm. is The Northman. And number one is Tar. Ah, Okay. Yeah. So you really liked the Northman. I did. Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was. I thought it was gorgeous. It looked like a kind of like a fever dream. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. Uh, it was pretty powerful. Yeah, and it had this like Robert Eggers is so good at conjuring up like an unexpected version of the past that somehow feels more authentic than what we thought we knew or what was kind of the mm-hmm. cultural mm-hmm. knowledge of the period, and. Mm-hmm. He resuscitates this like totally tripped out, extremely brutal version of kind of the the Nordic past that yeah. I think is is really fascinating. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a movie that was just kind of like it had something to say about survival and revenge. And it was doing it in, mm-hmm. in a very like classic way, you know, 
everything that you said about avoiding the inciting event this movie does not yeah right and it's it was very satisfying to see you know this sort of classical tragedy in some ways uh, portrayed on screen with its full mythical sort of uh, eccentricity Mm -hmm, uh, on full mm -hmm. display yeah so yeah I, i love that yeah um i enjoyed it too yeah and that's that's about it um I think we gave right. a, a pretty good overview of uh, of the Academy and the Oscars, and uh, yeah, it's always so great talking to you because, like, you're you always have a point of view, or you, you always notice things that I just never thought of before, or you have a way of contextualizing things where it's like, oh yeah, that's right, and yeah, I just I always find it so like uh, fascinating talking to you and I'm I'm really happy that uh, we could do this kind of crossover episode. Yeah, well likewise, like I could have said the exact same thing. Like whenever we have a conversation about films, it seems like you've picked up on something that I maybe have missed and I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's absolutely true." So yeah, I I really enjoyed this. And uh yeah, go tar. Yeah, yeah, I guess we'll see see uh how everything pans out um one final question are you actually going to watch the ceremony no i don't i i watched uh the one when parasite won Mm -hmm. last year i was in a business meeting and i just was kind of looking at my phone every once in a while Mm -hmm. and um i was seeing text messages about will smith and chris (laughs) rock and uh so I I missed it. I'm not sure how to actually watch it. I don't I don't use um, broadcast TV here, so I'm not sure if I'm going to watch it. I'll probably just you know uh, soak it in after the fact. Yeah, yeah. Like so many events in the world, I think I'll just wait for people on social media to tell me you know what happened and what to think. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and I'm very much hoping, Tim, that you are absolutely wrong in your predictions jim i am too i uh i've never <laughs> wanted to be more wrong <laughs> than i do now yeah yeah um yeah. but we'll see well i'm probably being overly uh, optimistic so because you know i have my mixed feelings about steven spielberg but i i do have a i think he has entertained us for so long um i think he deserves another acknowledgement by the academy yeah, I agree. I agree. And it would just be kind of a signal that like, I guess, Hollywood and the industry and the Academy isn't done with these kind of cinematic icons, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that maybe there's still a chance that this v- vision of cinema that we have can can kind of come back. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I just wanted to give one more kind of shout out to, um, to Movies sure. About and uh, your new YouTube channel oh, called thanks. Creative Philosophy. I, I hope people who are listening to Now It's Dark go and check those out. Uh, Movies About also has a YouTube channel. And I know you have a couple of books out there as, as well. Did you want to mention those as well? Uh, yeah, I have a... Um, sure, I've got a book on Terrence Malick called Terrence Malick's Unseeing Cinema. And I have a book of political philosophy called Living in an Age of Survival. And I'm working on some new things right now, but mostly, yeah, I'm digging into this uh, YouTube uh, channel thing and doing the podcast. And for those who are listening to movies about right now, I just want to say that Now It's Dark is a fantastic podcast about 
cinema, and I think you were actually an inspiration for us in getting ours started. So oh. I would highly recommend you check out uh, Tim's podcast. And Tim, I have to say good luck with the film. How close are you to being done with your movie? Well, the reason that our last recording was interrupted is because I had to Zoom call a guy doing the, the VFX. Um, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of in that end stage of post-production where I'm talking to like sound mixers and VFX people and color graders. Mm -hmm. Hopefully by the end of April, that's kind of my deadline uh, when this film will be done. What's the film called? The working title is called Disorder. And uh, it's a Russian gangster movie, kind of a, a Lynchian Russian gangster movie, you might say. Oh, sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to uh, to release it into the world. And and thanks for for your kind words uh, about the the podcast. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's really yeah. great to hear that. And uh, I hope we can do this again someday. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm sure we will. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you, Jim. All right, Tim. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>